Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Planful. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Carl Seidman. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Rowan. Happy to be here. So, Carl, I know you've been doing a, a lot of work within the FP&A organizations for a long time. Can you tell the, uh, tell the audience uh, what it is that you do and, and some of your specialization? Sure. So um, my background, I started out in management consulting for quite some time. And then uh, just based upon where I saw clients' needs and where the market was going, uh, I ended up moving into FP&A and have been in this realm for well over a decade now. Uh, and the areas that I focus most of my time on is uh, CFO advisory, FP&A implementation, and professional training and development. So I work with companies that are looking to scale, turn around, revitalize, and helping their finance functions or CFOs get to where they want to go. Uh, some companies that are struggling to really implement and develop their FP&A functions, I work with them to physically build that. And then on the professional development side, oftentimes with mid-size and larger companies, uh, people in their FP&A function are speaking all different languages in, in a financial sense and going about processes in different ways, uh, forecasting, modeling, visualization in different ways. And so I go in and I help them all speak the same language, save time, eliminate mistakes, uh, and reduce the rework that so many FP&A functions are used to uh, having to battle. Absolutely. And I certainly know that uh, different FP&A functions of, uh, of different sizes um, are organized very differently. Can you talk about some of the key differences uh, in FP&A and planning at different sizes uh, and, and talk about how they compare and contrast, really? Absolutely. I, I think that that's one of my favorite questions to answer. Uh, because oftentimes when companies come to me, they think that FP&A is almost this one-size-fits-all, same processes, same infrastructure, same mindset. And the point that I always raise is FP&A and continuous planning is very different according to company size and complexity. Uh, when I go into a company that is small, uh, let's say under $25 million in revenue or turnover, um, they are almost always in a, what I would call an immature and fractured FP&A function. Uh, and that often means that they're using Excel as their primary forecasting and planning tool. They might be on QuickBooks or Sage or some other accounting platform. They might be on another separate inventory or purchasing platform. So you have all this disconnect across the finance function. Uh, and in order to be able to forecast and plan and conduct analysis, you end up having to take all these little pieces of information, get them to the right person in the right way, and then it often takes a long time to do that. Whereas on the flip side, or on the extreme flip side, is you have Fortune 100 companies or Fortune 500 companies uh, that have mature and integrated financial planning and analysis uh, systems and planning. So they may have a, well, they will have an ERP system. They may have EPM in place, and they're going to have a lot of connectivity and integration among their systems. It's not going to be as fractured, but at the same time, because the company is so large, it sometimes takes some time to get the right information to the right people. What you're almost always going to see in that kind of a context is 
a center of excellence or shared services where information resides in ideally a central location and that information can be fed to the business partners or uh, financial professionals who need it. And then you have the middle area, which I sometimes call the middle market, which is going to be in the range of, let's say, 100 million on the low end, up to maybe a billion to a billion and a half on the top end. And that's going to be really a blended approach where you're going to see some connected and continuous planning in place, ideally in in EPM. But then you'll also see uh, some disconnect within the function, within the non-financial business partners, and also arguably a high uh, reliance on Excel. So I always find that middle area to be the most interesting because the company is maturing from that fractured wild west of a company, aspiring to be a much more cohesive, process-driven corporation. And and with those organizations, that middle market, as, as you called it, like what are the key focal points that you see as being the initial places where when you come in you, and they're, they're kind of burgeoning from that early stage or that fractured stage, as you called it, what are the key things that they can do uh, quickly to get themselves into that kind of continuous planning uh, mindset that, that you just talked about? Sure. Um, So I would say there are a few key areas that are important. Um, One, it's maybe the most esoteric, but but perhaps the most important is a cultural shift. So making sure that people understand that they're no longer going to be acting like a small entrepreneurial business. They're going to be acting like a much more mature connected company. And for a lot of small businesses, that's a, a major shift. Uh, I always say to companies that are embarking upon that path that a lot of the change needs to come or a lot of the the language needs to come from the top, Uh, certainly the CFO, uh, but also middle level managers as well who have bought in to the change and bought into the processes. Um, A second area kind of on the same breath is a mindset shift of recognizing what is possible and how that in many ways is going to be better than a lot of the frustrations and disconnects that existed when the business was a lot smaller and just starting out. Uh, And then third, this is a little bit more of the tangible aspect, is I always say to companies that are looking to expand um, in their financial integration as well as their, their software platforms, that software is not a fix all uh, to all of the problems. Uh, that if you have a company that is fractured in its people and processes and strategy, if you bring in software, uh, it's going to address some of those problems, but in some cases it may even make it more splintered. So for a company that's looking to evolve and invest in additional infrastructure and connectedness, it's really important to understand and and uh, redefine what your processes are and make sure that they're working the right way, that they can be uh, well articulated so that when a platform comes in, those processes can be well migrated. Um, I just received an email, uh, was I think two days ago, from a, a gentleman who is in one of my, my training and professional development programs, works at a, a very large commercial bank. And he said, you know, we're struggling to get our systems to work the right way, mainly because the processes that the legacy FP&A team uh, implemented before he came in were all messed up. 
And so he said, you know, what, what should we be doing in order to not have to unroll and unravel everything to then take the step forward? Uh, and I said, it's really important to be able to articulate what your processes are. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, being on the, on the marketing side and, and what I would call a marketing technologist for a long time. One of the big uh, things that I see in the planning and the finance space is, um, is that this is an, a, an emerging kind of capability, if you will, like finance technologists coming in. You know, for, for us in marketing, I think everyone uh, in the finance audience probably says, you guys have so many tools, so much technology. And that's true. And, and what we've been able to do with that is understand, you know, really quickly that we need to change, like that's the forcing function to change our processes is, you, is when you bring in something new, you need to change your processes not to adapt to the technology, but to make the technology work better for you by implementing something that, that is actually um, going to be more efficient, especially when you do that. And so as you're advising organizations, where do you ask them to start? Do you ask them to start with the process or do you ask them to start with the technology? Um, I would say generally start with the process, but within the process, identify the pain. Mm -hmm. So what is it that we are trying to accomplish that we are not able to accomplish as effectively as possible because we don't have systems or technology? Uh, again, with the point that I just made is you can't just dedicate to technology and say, this is going to fix all of our problems. You need to identify what is it that our problems are and how will it be solved by technology and then go out into the marketplace and say, well, what is out there that will help address some of these problems? Uh, I, I love what you just said about not you know, fully adjusting to the technology and changing your company and processes to, to marry to the technology, but really finding the right solution that fits into what you're already doing, but, but improves it and enhances it. Um, I often think that you know, a lot of companies, particularly those who uh, are run by non-financial people, look at technology as, as this savior, as this solution. And, it, and it's just not that way. Um, and, and just finally, an, another point that you made that I thought was really great is that you know, in FP&A, we are seeing technology um, emerge every single month uh, and every single year as we start to encounter these problems. So, you know, what, what I think is so exciting about being in this field right now is we're in territory we've never, ever been in before. And a lot of times, you know, my clients and companies that, that I talk to, they say, oh, well, there must be other companies that have figured this out, aren't there? And sometimes they say, no, all companies that I've been working with and have worked with for, for the last several months or years are all dealing with this. So we're kind of all in this together and, and figuring out what are the solutions as we start to, to encounter them. Yeah, and I think there's an element of also, you know, as these uh, new technologies emerge and, uh, and start delivering value, obviously customers then increase their, uh, not reliance, but their desire for more and, and the technology is needing to keep up with, with the clients. And that's, that's what ends up where we're all effectively in the same boat at that kind of, you know, more cutting edge. Of course, you're always going to have your early adopters and your, you know, the mighty middle and the laggards. That's mm -hmm. always going to happen. But for those that are in the early adoption phase, you know, they're going to see friction sometimes with the technology because it's not quite where they need it to be. And so that kind of then begs the question, like, where are we now compared to where we were five years ago? 
and how should we think about um, some of the technology that's uh, either here now or is coming so that we can plan for that future and and you know it sounds weird to say planning for that future amongst 2020 because uh, I don't think anyone's planning for, for these scenarios that we're in right now but, mm-hmm. you know from a technology standpoint I, I think it's very clear that uh, the technology is coming if it's not already here and, and people need to start thinking about what that future may be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a, an interesting question, uh, probably with a few different answers. You know, I, I think what is really interesting about this current time is just uh, coming to terms with what is needed that we don't have and then identifying what is possible. Uh, That is both in terms of what we can do business-wise, as well as in process and technology. So, you know, several years ago in the advisory work that I was doing, um, to be able to forecast uh, at the speed at which we now can, that was just in, in people's imagination. Uh, this was maybe about a year and a half ago, I was in Canada working with a very large telecommunications company and I was just mesmerized that they were able to go through their planning process uh, in less than a week in basically a, a reforecasting and, and replanning purpose, uh, process. And also what was interesting is in this room of, of uh, you know, people who are in this program with me, Uh, I would say 10% of them were in finance and 90% of them were not. And so to go into a company where they're able to update their planning, redo their forecast in less than a week time at the equivalent of a Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 company in the United States um, and mostly done by non-financial people was unheard of. But when I spoke to them, they said, this has been a game changer that we're now able to do this. And so to answer your question a little bit bit more directly is you could go into any company and you could say, you know, what are your problems here? What would you love to be able to accomplish that you're not currently able to do? And that is what technology should be able to do. Um, It is both the, I wouldn't say responsibility, but it is in, in the best interest of uh, business professionals, as well as as people in these uh, software companies or technology companies to be speaking to each other and to say, this is what we need. Would this be possible? And then for people in the technology firms to say, well, we'd never really thought about that before. We'd never encountered that before with any of our customers. That would probably be a simple add-on that we could put into our platform to make that possible. And so I think it, it's really an interesting time, again, to be able to use our imaginations and say, we've never been able to do this. Could this be possible in the next six months or a couple of years? And which are the best uh, vendors out there to make this a reality? Uh, I think, it, again, it's a really exciting time to be able to have that level of partnership rather than a vendor-customer relationship. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important is that the, the vendors are also at that cutting edge, looking for that feedback, seeking that input from their customers because, um, you know, as a vendor, 
we're also receiving the latest and greatest technology uh, from from you know other you know suppliers of ours, whether that's database technology or compute technology that is coming to our capability and, and us needing to kind of express that in the capabilities that we deliver for uh, for our end users and our customers mm -hmm. to, to make their lives easier and better. Mm -hmm. I always use the analogy, it's, it's always like remodeling a house, right? It's always in a constant state of flux. And there's some things that you have to do first before you can go and, you know, do all the, you know, beautiful things of the painting and decorating. You actually need to kind of lift up all the floorboards, think about, you know, do you want, how do you want that room laid out? And what are you going to change? Because you can't get to the more strategic things that end up making the end result beautiful for the rest of the organization, efficient for the rest of the organization, unless you do those foundational pieces first. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that, um, you know, we talk about uh, to our, to our customers and, and, and to uh, kind of pre-customers is about what are the foundational elements that you need to do first before you can get to that um, strategic advisorship and get to that point where like that telco company in Canada you were talking about, they're, they're at that kind of blissful state. I'm sure they want to improve things too, but that sounds like a pretty blissful state for a Fortune 100, you know, type organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned that, it, it takes me back to one of your earlier questions. Uh, and it, it, it I, I always say to companies when it comes to uh, a technology investment uh, or bringing an enhancement of technology into the business, that it shouldn't be designed uh, to um, put on all this, you know, all these fancy capabilities. And while, you know, a, a vendor may come in and talk about all these really neat features, uh, when it starts out at the very beginning, it is how can we supplement or supplant even what we're currently doing with a better solution? If we have a fractured foundation, how can we bring in a better foundation and then start to build better levels on that house? Um, you know, what's great about the, the platforms that are out there is they can do so much, but I always say to companies, you know, identify what processes you need to strengthen before getting into these, these, um, enhanced capabilities. Uh, it can be very seductive, but, uh, I always say, you know, start basic, start with the foundation, replace and enhance some of these processes and then build from there. Yeah, and, and I think the, the, there's an interesting, you know, we're obviously in an interesting moment in time. So how have you seen that change over the last six months, right? The desires and the requirements of companies in, in February uh, were very different to what they are now uh, in, in this moment in time. So what have you seen the shift and the prioritization of whether, you know, like the important use cases, the important foundations that, that people are looking to, to deliver to their business? How, how has that changed? Yeah, so over the last six months, um, you know, my, as I mentioned before, my work is a, a blend of advisory work as well as professional development. And it's been really interesting to be involved with dozens of companies over this time and hear how they're dealing with it and what they're focused on. So if I could summarize what some of the, the focus areas and concerns are, I would say if you took a look back six months ago, the immediate concern was cash flow management, 
uh, effective and accurate forecasting and, and what actually needs to be redone in a very, very short period of time. So I think that, you know, in the first couple of months of, of the craziness, it was, you know, do we have enough cash to uh, withstand our customers not purchasing from us on the time frame uh, and in the volumes that we were anticipating? What does that mean for our cash? What does that mean for you know, making sure that we're not bloated in overhead and that we're a right size business. But then identifying that, okay, with this new reality of, you know, not being able to procure a certain product from certain geographies of the world, of not being able to have our facility operational for, you know, the number of hours that we're accustomed to, of not having our finance team actually working on site in our office. What does that mean for us? So I would say in contrast to six months ago, over the last, I'd say maybe three to four months, it is what does our going business look like now? Like if, if this is going to last for longer than a few months, what do we need to be doing? And so much of that has been revisiting the budget and the forecast and saying, how do our assumptions need to change? Uh, it's taking a look at contingency and scenario planning and saying, okay, well, if we lose this customer or if we lose 80% of this business or 20% of that business, what does that mean and how do we need to act? And we need to have those answers now. Uh, and then the third area that I had mentioned is, you know, if we're not able to be on site and have our financial team working together, uh, how can we actually manage a finance function where everybody's working out of their home offices or working off site somewhere? So it is a combination of agility, speed, uh, scenario and contingency planning, and also remote work. Uh, and I think what's interesting is it's shown what's possible that this can be addressed uh, with uh, both a mindset as well as with existing people, as well as with the technology that's out there. Yeah, I, you know, from, from my perspective, as I, as I look in being the, the, the marketer that I am, I think that the, the biggest kind of enemy for most uh, most finance organizations is is access to data, right? It's, um, you know, whether it's in the right format, the right structure, but once a finance team can get that, they can then deliver it to transpose it, they can uh, transform it, provide it the insights and the, uh, the advice and the recommendations to the business that they need. But that data access has always been a barrier, whether it's, uh, you mentioned at the start of the call, whether it's in a silo, whether it's in disparate systems and, and then needing to be all of this connection. So that to me is one of the, when we talked about the foundations of the house, right? It's one of the, the core foundations that, that all organizations need to start with. Now, when we think about it from, you know, those infractured early stage companies to the middle market to the biggest, the access to the data changes because, you know, in the early stages, you may just not have the data. In the middle, it's like, oh, we've got the data, but we don't know what to do with it. And in the large stages, we've got too much. I don't know what to do. <laughs> How do I make this work? Right. So what advice would you have for finance uh, leaders and, and professionals in terms of getting data access at those different stages? And then secondly, using that to their advantage. And, and obviously now when we were talking earlier about the kind of future of FP&A, it's all about, you know, um, you know forecasting and, and data manipulation and, and using tools to that advantage. But unless you've got that in, it doesn't have to be a single place, but 
once you've got that data access, it becomes really, really vital for organizations to use that as frankly a, a kind of a weapon to outperform their competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, it, it, that, that's the big question. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about small companies, I, what, what I think is, is fascinating too, uh, you know, next week I'm doing a program on improving forecast accuracy in uncertain times. And sometimes, you know, when you talk to a small business, they might say, what, what, is, what is forecast accuracy? We don't even focus on that. You know, we're taking a look at individual customers. We're building bottoms up Excel models uh, and our data is being run by a few people. You know, it's, it's a few people and not even a declared or, or clearly articulated FP&A function. It's, it's a bunch of financial analysts or managers, maybe even the CFO. Um, and so there is really no connected planning because the group is so small, they're used to being fractured and any mistakes aren't as seemingly catastrophic in terms of monetary value as they might be in a much larger organization. When you get to the larger corporation, as I'd mentioned, you know, you might have a, a center of excellence that may have ownership over all of the data. And they are the ones who are responsible for uh, administrative rights and making sure that the right people have access to the right data at the right time. But as you had highlighted, the problem that they have is we have so much data. How do we make sure that we get the right information in the right format to the right people at the right time? Um, the middle area in that you know, middle market zone is, again, that, that kind of uh, transitional phase of we have too many people that we can't be sending Excel models to each other or Excel data. Uh, we don't really have the connected systems that allow us to pull the information we want as we want it. But ultimately, that's where it's really important to start acting like a bigger entity than perhaps you really are. Uh, I believe that when a company is going to move into a, a more mature either connected or integrated FP&A function, they start to act like the entity that they want to be. Uh, and that means defining your processes, doing some of the unfortunate uh, responsibilities, putting together protocols and, and standards. Because if you don't do that and you start to become a high growth organization without that infrastructure, you're gonna end up being exposed to significant error. Um, multiple sources of truth instead of a single source of truth. And, you know, going back to my, you know, uh, my fraud accounting and crisis management days, you, ex you expose yourself to vulnerabilities in the organization, where, rather, whether that be inaccurate data that results in significant problems or abilities for people to act uh, either in a self-interested way or perhaps in a, a, a malicious way that can compromise uh, the, the, the process in the company. Yeah, I think for me, the, the one thing that I would say there, when, when I talk to individuals within organizations, it's that kind of, that uncertainty of how confident am I in these numbers? And when you're pulling from multiple sources of the truth or you're pulling from different departments that have put together, uh, you know, the same set of numbers, but under completely different assumptions. And then you're trying to uh, create the aggregation of that and nothing kind of matches. Then when you're going up to, to whether it be the C-suite or whether it be to the CFO and presenting numbers, that kind of fear and uncertainty of saying, well, I'm not even sure what these numbers represent at this point in time, because 
they've come from so many different places, so many different sources with so many different assumptions. How do I, how do I make sense of this and relay that to the CFO in a confident way, enabling them to make confident decisions? Well, that's, that's nigh on impossible when you're doing it in that way. And, and that's mm-hmm. where, when you said, um, you know, creating that structure, that framework, that, um, that rigor, it's not necessarily, um, you know, a, a bad thing. It, it's really important that we get to those things because that then allows you to, to do that, you know, um, advisory with bi- different business units and, and take that uh, to the CFO and say, right, the, these teams were all under the same set of assumptions. Uh, we're all confident they're all working on the same idea. And, and now I'm much more confident in these numbers and I, I've kind of had the time to validate them because things were... Um, you know, in the right framework to, mm-hmm. to start. That to yeah. me is one of the more powerful things that uh, that an FPNA individual can start feeling. It is going from that, you know, that that before framework to the after framework is just the confidence they have in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I I absolutely agree, and that's why I really love the the middle market space is because you have these companies that still kind of act like those scrappy small businesses uh, that are coming up with their assumptions the best that they can, and there's a lot of room for error and forgiveness. Uh, But then when you get to the mature company, there there isn't a whole lot of room for that kind of uh, scrappiness and forgiveness. You can't go to a CFO and say, you know, these are all the various sources of information that we rely upon. We don't have a high degree of confidence. We don't know where our risks are. Uh, It's going to take days or weeks for us to get this answer. You know, while some companies, uh, and in fact, I mean, some Fortune 500 companies I have worked with where that that still is the reality, uh, but that doesn't have to be the reality. Um, And I think that before the company becomes of that size and complexity, there's a lot of work that can be done to make sure that it works right. And so for those organizations or those listeners that may be in that uh, in that mode right now where they're going into their what would be likely their annual planning process and uh, they've certainly probably gone through planning all year um, Mm -hmm. and they're, they're thinking, wow, I'm still not sure about this. Like, how can they get started now? Where should they start? And what should they be thinking about uh, from your perspective in terms of uh, getting to that that next stage where they can start feeling more confident uh, and and then getting to that future end state? Sure. Um, So this is sometimes a, a painful uh, time when when companies are going through growth and maturity to leave that you know kind of scrappy excel based planning uh, model to one that's a lot more connected and agile and robust um, you know i I grew up very very deep into excel uh, I would call myself i would self proclaim myself as an excel modeling expert. Um, and it can do a whole lot. It can accomplish a lot of the planning and analysis that even a company in the middle market space uh, needs to accomplish. I mean, I, I've worked with and run, largely run multi, multi-hundred million dollar businesses off of Excel models that are fed by you know, your basic accounting data. Now, it's not ideal, but you can get into the process and into the culture uh, in that kind of um, 
immature model, I might say. Mm -hmm. So you can get into rolling forecasts. You can get into driver-based planning. Uh, you can get into a very efficient month close. Uh, you can run scenarios. You can do data visualization all within kind of a fractured environment. And I would say to companies, rather than uh, you know, just stay true to the slow, inefficient processes, try to do it as well as you possibly can, both through your existing fractured systems, but also document it. I, I know I've, I've made reference several times now to process and refinement of those processes, but build it the right way in that fractured environment and then identify those pain points of saying, well, you know what? The closed process is so terrible. There's got to be a better way. Uh, the rolling forecast process, it is really terrible right now. There's got to be a better way. Uh, to be able to run, you know, currency translations across multiple geographies, there's got to be a better way. Multi-unit consolidations, there's got to be a better way. So when I go into companies, I, I say, you know, what are you struggling with? What are the pain points? If you could turn back or if you could turn the, the clocks forward six months and take a look backwards, what would be different? Identify what those goal, what those gaps are and what those efficiencies are. And then take a look and say, well, what is out there that could alleviate or address these problems? You don't have to find a one-stop shop for everything, but identify, you know, what are the three major pain points and what can we do to address that and save our, ourselves time and, and cost and inefficiency? Yeah, and it's that cost and inefficiency that we've talked about that, that I hear a lot of where it's like, you know, a lot of... Uh, more conservative CFOs historically may have said, well, we can just hire a contractor to solve for some of that. But what they're then missing out on is all that value add that they can go and then advise the business on. And uh, I really like that, that, that mindset that you said, we'll try and solve it with current tools, document, find the pain points with those current tools, find the breakpoints too. You may find breakpoints within that technology stack that you may already have. And that's going to help you justify that investment um, to potentially if you're working for a conservative CFO that's like, ah, oh, it'll work out just fine. We can keep doing it the way we've been doing it. Well, if you can prove that it doesn't work by trying it first, um, then you're going to be in a much better position to justify that and then show the advantages that you give to, to the organization. Yeah, I, I agree with that fully. Um, and that takes a, a cultural shift. That's why I said at the very beginning of our discussion, you know, one of the areas that needs to change is, is culture. The second is mindset and make sure that the leadership at the top understands where the, the transformation is going and, and why it's important so that everybody's bought in. Um, I would also say, you know, a little bit uh, of a different mindset that FP&A groups need to have when they're moving in this direction is kind of take it almost from a almost like an agile uh, process implementation. So it's not, you know, we start at the very beginning, we get to the very end and we stop. It's an iterative process throughout the entire time uh, and taking, you know, one key uh, technique or key functionality at a time and taking it through 10% and, and doing a, you know, an all hands meeting of the, of the team that's responsible for that implementation and saying, you know, how's it going? Uh, what are we working on next? What's not working? And address that and then move forward and do it again and move forward and do it again. Um, FP&A is just too quickly moving and too important to think that we can just start at the beginning and when we get to the end, we stop. 
uh, and that requires a, a mindset shift and a cultural change. Mm. And, and when you think about that, there's there's kind of two things, uh, you know, I, I would say two requirements there. There's there's empowerment and upskilling, right? Um, so how would you explain the difference and, and how would you uh, try and educate, you know, our, our audience today on saying, you know, to become empowered, you need to do A, B and C, but to do upskilling, obviously they need to take your course, but what else can they do? It's, it's a great question. Um, you know, in, in the programs that I do, you know, if, I guess I might even take a look at all three tiers of my business is if you take a look at the advisory side, I'm working with companies and teams to build the models, conduct the analysis, roll out the plans so that they have an increased level of confidence about where they're going. But they can't do that unless they have the systems in place and the processes actually being run the right way. So those have to go hand in hand. But then also you can't get people to execute upon the initiative if they don't have the skills. So, you know, what, what I do is when I go into a company is I say, again, what are the pain points? But the pain, it's not just the process in this case. It's the process, it's the people, and it's also the technology. Uh, and so I go in and I'll do an assessment of saying, okay, let's take a look at your people separately. Let's take a look at your processes separately. Let's take a look at your systems separately. And what is truly the root cause? Because oftentimes when a company brings me in for a training program, they say, oh, well, we just want our people to know X, Y, and Z. And after the training program is over, people say, oh, this is great. But then I follow up month later and I say, well, how are things going now? And they say, well, we can't really implement this because our systems are not working the right way and it's not getting us to where we want or not getting us the right data. So ultimately, you need to take a look at all three of those uh, table legs, um, both in marriage together, but also in isolation and identify where the problems are really stemming from. What's the root cause and address them accordingly. Once you do that, uh, you constantly need to be improving. That is not just taking a look at your systems and process, but also making sure that your people are confident that they have the autonomy and empowerment to run the function as they need to without feeling like they don't have the skills and without feeling like the systems and support isn't there. So in my mind, it really is kind of a three-tiered assessment approach rather than looking at all of them in total isolation. Yeah, and I think the 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 end result of some of that is, um, you know, we, we talk uh, here at here at Planful about financial IQ and uh, and you know how you can then take that financial IQ and uh, and help advise the business, right? That that's what FPNA teams are, are really fundamentally there to do is try and help their their organization outperform uh, either their competition or their goals, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so. How would you advise FPNA leaders or FPNA professionals to uh, to make their financial IQ or their intelligence more accessible to the rest of the business, so that they can can really be focusing on 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 doing that, whilst sometimes knowing that they're operating in an imperfect world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they they may be in that fractured state. They may be you know working through some of that transformation. But how can they take that intelligence and, and, and do that earlier whilst they're then trying to do that transformation internally? Yeah. Um, one of the challenges that I often see in 
your generic business that I drop into is people being overly busy with non-value added activities. Uh, you have very smart, uh, very experienced people who, you know, in my conversations with them, they say, you know, I spend so much time doing this that it is distracting and takes away my time from doing this over here, this value added activity. And so, you know, while companies will bring me in and say, you know, we want to do professional development to save time and eliminate mistakes and reduce rework, that's all fine and good, but that's just the front end. And I say, ultimately, you want to be able to accomplish those three mandates so that these people don't have to spend time doing that and they can instead focus over here. And over here is being a counselor, being an advisor uh, to financial and non-financial people in the business. I say to, to groups of middle managers and, and even young people, I say, so long as your culture supports it, I want you to act like you are all junior CFOs. No matter what your experience is, I want you to be both very technically astute, but also to be an advisor in a strategic sense who's talking to operations and human resources and procurement uh, and production and, and, and all these other groups that need what you have and what you're capable of dispelling to them. What's so challenging historically was that you have so many financial analysts who are just stuck in this area instead of being much more holistic advisors like, uh, like a junior CFO. So my hope and, and the companies that I love working with are the ones that empower those people to say, you do what you need to do to pull yourself out of this and focus more over here. Yeah. And, and, and is there any, like, you know, if you were to say, do this one thing, is it just act like a junior CFO, like put yourself in the seat and then that'll help you get there? Would that be your advice? Um, I, I wish that it were that simple and, and that easy, but one of the challenges that exists in almost every organization I've ever worked in is you have this person right here who was hired to complete tasks and fulfill a job responsibility. And so that person's director or SVP might say, yeah, I, I really do want you to work over here and be that advisor, but I, I really want you to fill that job responsibility. So it, it's just a delicate balance between how do we make sure that the work is done to the liking of the group, of the director, uh, and of the company, and then be able to carve out enough time so that the person really can work over here. Um, I think that that comes with all three of those approaches I mentioned before. It comes down to um, upskilling and making sure that people have the, conf the, the competence and confidence that they need, uh, that the processes are actually being done the right way, and that the systems and infrastructure are working the right way too. Because all of that work in the right way allows them to complete their job effectively uh, and in a, a time-efficient way, and then be able to migrate their work over here. And one of the, the main reasons I say that that's so important is not only is it going to help the organization, but undoubtedly that person is going to be more engaged and more empowered in the future direction of their career. Um, I've gone into so many companies in, in professional development where I'm talking to somebody uh, about what they do. And then I get an email or I get a phone call after the program. They say, Carl, that was great. 
but I kind of want to talk to you about um, moving away from this company because I just don't think that I have the opportunity to move into as valuable position as I think I should. Uh, and I go into companies, I talk culture and talk about people and, and career pathways as much as I do about processes and systems. Mm, that's really interesting. I know there's, there's that dichotomy of, of uh, you know, people really wanting to break free of all of that mundane, as you just said, but uh, not having, you know, the, um, probably the, the empowerment to go and solve that problem um, to, to then, that then gives them the time to go and do that. And, mm -hmm. and that's the big challenge. Yeah. And, and just one more point on that, because we've, we've touched upon this several times in, in our discussion is when you talk about company size, um, it's easier in a smaller fractured company to have that person be able to add the value where they need to add it. Whereas when you go into a much larger corporation that arguably has a much more mature FP&A function, uh, better integration of systems and, and data and connected planning, that might not be as easy for that person. So that, that's why I just love these three different dichotomies of small, mid-size and, and large companies because FP&A functions and career development and, and ability to get the job done is so different. There you go, everyone. Carl says, go work for a smaller company. Get more done. <laughs> All Arguably, right. yes, in, in many ways. Well, this has been a, a real pleasure. And, uh, and there's two questions that I, I always try and ask our guests on the show. Um, the first one is, who else should I have on? Who else should you have on? Um, that might take me some time to think about. But, uh, you know, I, I would say there, there are some CFOs who are in Chicago. And I can give you some names after, after a call. But there are CFOs in Chicago, which which is where I live. Um, but we are a very entrepreneurial city uh, where we have lots of funding despite not being on a coast and companies that are entrepreneurial, but they are also in that middle market space where you've got companies where there are you know, CFOs and heads of finance who act like they're still working for a startup, but these are companies that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue. Uh, and so they've been effectively able to blend uh, that startup feel with the, um, you know, the more mature FP&A function that we've talked about. But I can certainly give you some contact information of people who I'd recommend. All right. Looks like we'll be hearing some more Chicago accents on the, on the podcast soon. And, <laughs> and then the final question is, uh, what does being planful mean to you? Um, being planful to me, I think, means being mindful of the big picture, uh, not just focusing on one element of a finance function or a planning process, but realizing that planning is all about different people and different functions, different elements of an organization. Uh, you know, as I had mentioned, I'm going to be doing a, a program next week in forecasting during uncertain times. And I make the point that forecasting and planning is not just a financial activity. Uh, it should be led and driven by all departments within a company, maybe coordinated by finance, but ultimately involves everybody. And I think that when you're planful, it means that you are mindful of how all the different functions and all of the different um, initiatives within a company, in one way or another, they're connected. 
Uh, and when you can have that kind of coordination and continuity, it works well for both the people as well as the entity as a whole. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. You're kind of satisfying both ends of that spectrum, both at the individual level and, and at the organizational level. And that, that's, that's great. So, Carl, thank you so much. Uh, good luck with your session next week on, on forecasting in uncertainty. I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to see how we can all achieve that at the moment. Um, but thank you very much for your time today. And uh, hopefully I'll have you back again soon. I'd love it. Thanks a lot, Rowan. Great to talk to you. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.